we pick up today immediately where we left off last week, following the showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah, representing the Lord. We follow up immediately to that moment where the prophets of Baal could not get Baal to respond with fire to light the altar, whereas when Elijah called for fire from heaven, down it came. And not only took apart the, the offering, but also the altar and licked up the water in the trench. So we follow that with the immediate next step of the aftermath. And we've seen Elijah before go from confronting a king to hiding in a cave. And we're going to actually go back to that same pattern again this morning. This text was chosen because we could time it this way for it to be Pentecost for the Spirit being at work in this text, and also hopefully an encouraging word for our graduates. So I invite you, in a moment after prayer, to listen for the word of the Lord in 1 Kings 19. But before we come to God's word together, let's pray. God, our loving and caring Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher and challenger, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the furthering of his kingdom on this earth. May this be our primary and utmost concern. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. 1 Kings 19, 1-18 Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave And spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out. And stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It might seem almost anticlimactic to follow the showdown on Mount Carmel with this passage where Elijah is hiding in a cave. When the Lord responded with fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, and now we're given a gentle whisper in 1 Kings 19. Or as I often call it, a still, small voice. The last three versions of the NIV have translated this a gentle whisper. Other translations will call it the the sound of sheer silence in which God answered to Elijah after the earthquake and the wind and the fire. I'd like us to try on that language of still, small voice. That's how it was introduced to me by a mentor many years ago in encouraging us to listen for that still, small voice. But once again, a still small voice might seem anticlimactic in comparison to fire from heaven and slaughtering the prophets of Baal in the ravine as they just did in chapter 18. Maybe this text seems anticlimactic in comparison to Pentecost with, once again, fire from heaven coming down and descending on each one and people speaking in tongues and proclaiming the gospel. Maybe this text seems like an anticlimactic letdown from all of the great and majestic and grandiose things that God can do. Even from the raising of the widow's son in Zarephath, or or God intervening with the laws of physics and making her flour and oil not run out until the three-and-a-half-year drought was over. Maybe this passage of Elijah being a little bit depressed, being somewhat withdrawn, And standing at the mouth of a cave to listen for a still small voice, maybe it seems like a letdown. But I also wonder if for most of us, 
Even if we wish that we could see something like Mount Carmel or we could see some great and grand sign, if what Elijah hears from the Lord in this text is more of what our own experience is of hearing from God, a still, small voice. A still, small voice. Meaning not only is the voice being spoken in such a way that you need to listen for it, but also that you need to still yourself, that you need to quiet your soul, you need to center your spirit, that you need to let go of all the other distractions and hindrances and noise of this world to focus on that one still, small voice of God, to hear that gentle whisper of the Lord. Maybe that's how we experience God more than in earthquakes and great winds and fire, but listening for that voice, still and small as it is. For our graduates, I wonder what it will be like as you go into the next stage of life, whether your graduate work is completely done and now it's off to the workforce, or whether it's a hybrid of work and continuing education, or whether it's school, how many big noises will be competing for your attention? And for all of us, how many big noises and voices of urgency and right now and your attention needs to be here and here and here. All of the distractions of life, of just being alive. As I often say, it's expensive to be alive and it's busy to be alive. To find time amidst all of those big voices, things that are as shaking as earthquakes, as loud as wind and as consuming as fire of all of our time and energy, Where are we left with the time to listen for the still, small voice of God? Is that part of our daily and weekly rhythm? When I think about how I want God to communicate with us, and sometimes there's a place for this, I I want God, like a coach, to run in and and, and grab us by the helmet, football or taekwondo. I want God to just grab us by the helmet and yell at us exactly what he wants us to do. And maybe sometimes we feel like that, like God just hits us with a two-by-four and says, go and do. But I wonder if more often than not, what we need to listen for and how God speaks to us when we do still ourselves is like the coach who comes up alongside of you and gives you that still, small voice, a gentle whisper, simply saying, stick with it. Finish the fight. Finish the game. One more race, one more lap. Or maybe for you, for me, for any of us, it's the voice of a trusted mentor or a friend or a parent telling us that they're with us, that we're not alone, and that this is not the end. Those moments when we are calm enough to hear the gentle whisper will have a longer-lasting effect than all of the grandiose signs that we've seen. And that's why Elijah is withdrawn right now. That's why Elijah is frustrated, because he has just seen and been a part of this great demonstration of God's power, and it seems to have no lasting effect. Jezebel is still queen. Now Elijah is being hunted for his life, even though the drought has ended that she hated him for in the first place because he prophesied that drought. But Elijah looks around and sees that nothing has changed. Even with Mount Carmel, this great sign, even with that, 
Nothing has changed. Everything is the same. And so he withdraws. After a showdown with a king, the prophet once again goes to hide in a cave. Now, there's all kinds of loaded symbolism in this text. For one, Elijah takes 40 days and 40 nights to get to Horeb. For our listening ears thinking, where else do we hear this in Scripture? It was 40 years of wandering in the desert when the people were at Mount Horeb, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And echoing into the New Testament, Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in temptation until angels came and tended him just the way they came and tended to Elijah. Forty days and forty nights, a long-term period of time meant for a show of completion. For Moses with the Ten Commandments, for Elijah being brought to the same mountain that the Ten Commandments were given, and for Jesus to experience temptation just as we fully experience temptation. Forty days, forty years. The key part here is forty. And who is it on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, the two others who had experienced 40 in the desert. There's other instances of loaded symbolism, and as much as that pains me, I'm going to skip some of that, especially just knowing graduates have heard enough or will hear enough lectures, and so we'll keep this moving and shorter. So rather than some of the the logic and layout of the text, I'd like us to pay attention to the pathos of the text empathizing and identifying with Elijah for each one of us at any life stage to wonder, are we here or have we ever been here before? In verse 4, when Elijah just simply says, I have had enough, Lord. I have had enough. I'm done. This is it. I've had enough and I can't take any more. Elijah just feels finished. And his next comment in verse 4 makes us understand why. He says, take my life, take me out of this game, because I am no better than my ancestors, no better than my forefathers before me. And what he means by this is, you know what? I've been trying to make a difference. I've been trying to serve God faithfully. I've been working at the job you gave me as faithfully as I could, and I don't see anything changing. All the prophets before me, they tried to make a difference too. They tried to bring the people back to God, and it didn't work. And now, I'm just like one of them, no better than any of my ancestors, no better than anyone who came before me. There is a thief of discouragement, a thief of hope, in the form of discouragement when we feel ineffective. And certainly in our walk with God, when we feel like we're ineffective servants of the Lord, when we feel like we've had enough, we can't take any more, and that we're not going to be able to make a difference, our hope is stolen away. And that's exactly where Elijah is. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there when you just don't think anything else is going to make a difference? For Elijah, he was ready to die, to give up. But that's not where God leaves him, even though it is in that state of despair that God meets him and with a still small voice essentially says, keep on going. One more day, 
One more month. I'm not done with you yet. The angel of the Lord comes back to Elijah twice, and it's twice that Elijah speaks with God and repeats the same speech verbatim, if you caught that. Elijah is led out into the wilderness to a cave on Mount Horeb, quite possibly the same place that Moses encountered God when Moses shielded his face when God came by. But what else does Elijah say? God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Twice he says it to him. And I think the first time, if, if Elijah was asked and heard that voice, I think the first time he simply would have thought, well, this is literally where I am, and this is why I'm here. But I wonder if the second time that voice came through, what are you doing here, Elijah? If Elijah picked up on the hint that this was not where he was supposed to be, that he wasn't supposed to be out hiding in a cave, but that he still had work to do, that his commission as prophet, as one of God's people, was not over. And I wonder if in our times of retreating to caves, if that's what we need to hear too. What are you doing here? I've got something else for you. And Pentecost, as a day as the church we celebrate, is a remembering that the Holy Spirit will always be with us, that God will never leave us or forsake us, but will be with us always, even to the end of the age, even to the completion of the task, even to the follow-through of the things that we're not sure if they're going to make a difference or not. God meets us at our cynicism, but doesn't let us keep it as a permanent option. But rather, just as he cooked bread for Elijah over coals, he strengthens us. And God strengthens us in spirit as well. Maybe when we take the time to be still and know that the Lord is God. Psalm 46.10. But Elijah's complaint to God, when God asks him, what are you doing here hiding in a cave? He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty saying, I have done everything right. I have followed through. I've been diligent. I've listened for the word of the Lord, and I don't see it changing anything. He goes on to point a finger at the Israelites, rightfully so, in saying, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. Isn't it interesting that Elijah has actually just repaired the altar of the Lord, and they've just put to death all the prophets of Baal? And yet the mindset that he's in will not listen to reason, will not see any other signs or think back on any other evidence of how God has been at work, but is simply focused on all that's been lost. But then Elijah says something that is simply not true. And God will correct him in due time. Elijah says, I am the only one left. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It's me against the world. You'd think that from even two weeks ago when we talked about Obadiah, is Elijah the only one? If Obadiah is still in the court of Ahab, Obadiah who hid a hundred prophets in caves and kept them with food and drink even during the drought? How can Elijah say that he's the only one? God will correct him in due time. But once again, it's one of the ways I think the devil works on us is to make us feel like it's just us by ourselves. There's no one else. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's faithful. I'm the only one who's righteous. I'm the only one who's tried. And now they're trying to get rid of me too. And once we feel lonely and isolated, we lose hope. 
God speaks into Elijah's despair. Just as I hope that we listen in such a way that God speaks into each one of us in times of despair, in times of trial where we are not sure how this is going to turn out. Those are the moments when we need that still, small voice the most. The still, small voice of God speaking into our trials, speaking into our pain, speaking into our feelings of isolation, speaking into moments of depression and high anxiety. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. Elijah is not the only one left. And after Elijah a second time has spoken his peace, after the Lord has come by in his presence and has spoken to Elijah through a gentle whisper, through that still, small voice, the first thing that God says to him is, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Get back to it. I'm going to offend the Headleys a little bit. I really don't like horses. But that, that whole idea of get back on the horse one more time, I'd much rather get on a four-wheeler one more time. But get back on. Go back the way you came. Go back to that daily grind, maybe that you find no meaning in. Go back the way you came, because I'm not done with what I've sent you to do. Go back to the desert of Damascus. And then Elijah is told to do three things, three anointing pieces, which is the work of God's Spirit, which is a fitting day to celebrate Pentecost. And he's first told to anoint Hazael king over Aram. That's not Israel. That's outside of Israel. But it's a reminder for Elijah that God is the God of the whole world. All that are on heaven and earth belong to the Lord. And so this is an international thing, that even when things aren't looking so good in Israel, God is not limited to only working with Israel. And Elijah is sent to anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Because Ahab, as we've said before, has not succeeded as king in following the Lord. And then, to give a measure of hope is to know that it doesn't end with you, Elijah, because you're also going to anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah. For Elijah to know that God is not done with Israel comes in the form of knowing that Elijah is going to have a successor, Elisha. And so even though God's not done with Elijah, there is hope in knowing that someone will continue the good work that you have started. Someone will pick up where you left off. Someone will keep going on the path that you started out on, even if you don't get to see all of it finished, to know that God is not done with the world. It inspires hope, and it's one more way of knowing that you're not alone. And most of all, God answers that simple question, that simple, that simple response, rather, of Elijah saying, I am the only one left. Verse 18 is among one of my favorites in this passage. Because God plainly tells Elijah, I reserve 7,000, 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In that moment of feeling that you're alone and isolated and it's only you and that the good work is going to end with you, to know that one, you have a successor, that God will continue God's good work. 
And two, to know that you are not alone. 7,000 people are with you, even if you don't know each one of them by name. 7,000, a small army is with you, particularly to our graduates. As you go into this next phase of life, whatever that might be, I pray that you will never succumb to the temptation of feeling that you are alone. I encourage you, actually, just for a moment to look around, even here. And for all of us, in all seriousness, take a look around and see who's here. For those moments where we think, I am all alone, there's no one here left with me, to know that we have a small army of people here who are willing to pray with us, who are willing to walk alongside of us, who will be with us and who will not leave us, people of God who are gathered with us. These moments give us hope. That's why worship matters. That's why gathering with believers matters so that we don't think that we're isolated or all by ourselves, but that we have those who will go right along with us. That's encouragement and hope to the Gemmons right now to know that we're praying for them. It's encouragement for Marlene Vandebosch as she recovers to know that there's people praying for her. Is encouragement to know that we are not alone and that God is not done with us and that even when God asks us to persevere at things we don't want to, that we don't have to do that alone. That we have this great cloud of witnesses. And sure, that's not limited to North Holland by any means. But when I look around here, I rejoice, for I know that each one here is not alone. Sometimes we do feel isolated, and sometimes we isolate ourselves for a season. But to know we are not alone. Elijah was not alone. And the still, small voice of God will continue to speak, even as God tells us to go back to it. Try one more time. Get back on the horse one more time, for I am not finished. I'm not finished with you, and I'm not finished with the work I'm doing in the world, and I need you for it. And I need you to walk alongside of everyone else to know that they are not alone. My friends at North Holland, as we listen to the still, small voice of God, we know that it was never a lone wolf project, even as we look to celebrating our groundbreaking today, that it is not by anyone by themselves that has brought us to this point. But maybe a few who heard a still small voice in wondering, even back in the 90s, and that still small voice has persisted until this day. And it will continue to persist and speak into what God is up to here among us and who else God will bring into our midst and how lives will be transformed as we listen together for the still, small voice of God. Like the coach who comes alongside of you and tells you to get back in the game one more time. Let us continue to be people who listen for that voice and to know that you are not alone. Let's pray.